named Bar-Jesus. Uh, and we talked about how uh, anomalous that was for a Jew to be a sorcerer. Uh, and here he was, the right-hand assistant to the proconsul Sergius Paulus. And Sergius Paulus is appointed by Caesar. So he's obviously an intelligent man, high power, respected, in charge of the whole island of, of Cyprus as a representative of, of, uh, of Caesar. And it says here that the proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because... He wanted to hear the word of God. Underline that. He wanted to hear the word of God. Somehow his heart had been touched. God had prepared him. He'd been prepared. He wanted to hear the word of God. But then we talked about in verse 8, but Elimas, who's also the same name as Bar-Jesus, the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them. And tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. We don't know what he did, but he worked on him. I'm sure he, he designated and spun a number of lies. Deceit. Filled his head with thoughts. Discouraged him. Told him, this is nonsense. It's fairy tales. You can't believe this. You can imagine how he spun. How he spun it. It's the demons. It's Satan. It's what he does best. He is a deceiver of the first rank. And you see him working here because I'm sure what's gone on here is, and why I say I think it's Satan, I don't just think it's a demon. I think it was a demon with Elemis, but I'm sure that Satan was right there at his shoulder because I am convinced that Satan said, I couldn't destroy Jesus, but I'll do my best to destroy the church. Why not? They're just human beings. They're a bunch of pygmies. I can destroy them. And I'm going to do it right here, right now, before it gets started. I'll wreck this first missionary trip. I'll cut it off at its knees. And I'm sure this is what's going on. It's the first great missionary trip that we're aware of. And so he opposes the faith. He deceives the proconsul. And so in verse 9, I want you to imagine that you're sitting there as Paul and Barnabas confront this deceiver, this demon, who had effectively tried to stop the word of God. And it says in verse 9, Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit. And please circle that in your notes. Filled with the Holy Spirit. Filled with the Holy Spirit. And the reason why this is important is because whenever we speak, we have to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Because when you are filled with the Holy Spirit, then it's not your words. It's God's words. And you're filled with a power, a supernatural power, because God wants to fill you with a supernatural power. And the reason I take you and I tell you this, filled with the Holy Spirit, because I'm reminded of the... the story where the seven sons of Shiva, the priest, decided that they would also exercise some demons. Do you remember? They would exercise some demons. And they then went to the demon-possessed people, and here's how they exercised the demons. In the name of the God that Peter and John preaches, we command you to come out. And the demons 
responded, Peter, we know. John, we know. But who are you? And proceeded to beat them up, take off their clothes, throw them out in the street naked after a terrible beating. You see, you don't fool around with things like this unless you're filled with the Holy Spirit. And the other lesson that we need to learn here is this, that our spirit man is like a pail, but it has holes because we're human. And so, as I've said to you before, every day as you get out, out of your bed and put your feet on the floor, for many of us, we're already half empty. For some of us, we're fully empty because while we're in bed, where our minds have traveled to Egypt. Egypt, spiritual Egypt, okay? Spiritual Egypt, where the Hebrew people pretty much lost their identity. We've traveled to Egypt, and we are drained. And so we have to ask God, as we start each day, Lord, dear Lord, fill me with your presence. And you need to do this with prayer and supplication and with Bible study. And you go to church and you be with righteous people. And you, be with, you, you, you affiliate with Christian friends. You do all the things that boo you up because this is how your walk gets strengthened. And this is what you need. You see St. Paul here? This is exactly what went on. This is why he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And it says, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elimas and said, you are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? And when he says that, will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Folks, he's not talking to Elamas. He's talking to Lucifer. <laughs> okay? When he says, will you never stop? He's looking straight through Elamas, and he sees Lucifer right there, and that's who he's talking to. Because that's what it's about. From the Garden of Eden on. Perverting the right ways of the Lord. Spinning lies. Spinning deceit. And recognizing that right here, right there at the moment where they are at their first missionary stop and about to present the gospel to someone who asked for it, here he is. Now, and look how the, the power of the Holy Spirit works when there's empowerment. Now the hand of the Lord is against you. This is no human being speaking like this who just read a book on theology. This is no theology draft, though I think I'll use this line. This is good. This is somebody saying, now the hand of the Lord is against you. Why? Because I'm speaking God's words. He's telling me, now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind, and for a time you will be unable to see the light of the sun. Notice it's not permanency. For a time, you will be blind. Immediately, mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed. He believed. For he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. So what happens here? Through a judgment of God, an evangelical moment takes place. 
So through judgment, and this is, make no mistake about it, this is judgment. God uses that judgment as an evangelical moment to propitiate the gospel. And it's an unbelievably powerful statement. And this is not the first time God visits a judgment on people who practice the occult. Now, you know the story in the Old Testament that Moses, when he went to Pharaoh, had the staff that God had given him and was directed to use that staff. He goes before Pharaoh and, Pharaoh, you know, and saying that I am representing the I am. He throws the staff down and the staff becomes a serpent. It's God. It's God. It was no trickery. It was God. But you see how Satan works? Because every kind of, of legitimate work of God, there is a perversion. There is a perversion in which Satan can mimic it. This is what happens. You'll see it. He has talent. He has gifts. And so those ma magicians threw down their staffs, and they turned into serpents. That ought to make your skin crawl. Okay? That ought to make your skin crawl. It's the dark arts. Okay? It's the dark arts. He could duplicate it. Satan could duplicate it, but here's what Satan couldn't do. The serpent of Moses ate the other serpents. Amen. Ate the other serpents. And so now a judgment is visited on those very magicians. And if you would turn with me to Exodus chapter 9. I just want you to read this because I think it, it imports what I'm telling you about. Exodus chapter 9. And it tells what God told Moses to do. And actually we can read from verse 8 because I think you get the full story because God is giving Moses instruction. This is what I want you to do, Moses, about this plague of boils. And if you read in verse 8, it says, Then the Lord said, to Moses and Aaron, take handfuls of soot from a furnace and have Moses toss it into the air in the presence of Pharaoh. It will become fine dust over the whole land of Egypt and festering boils will break out on men and animals throughout the land. So they took soot from a furnace and stood before Pharaoh. Moses tossed it into the air and festering boils broke out on men and animals. The magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils that were on them and on all the Egyptians. The magicians couldn't stand before Pharaoh, before Moses. They could not stand. And so you see, there's a judgment. There is a judgment. Uh, and in this particular instance, the judgment that was visited upon Elamus was blindness. But God used the judgment but God used his judgment to advance the kingdom of God. Further on in that chapter, it makes a statement that notwithstanding this, Pharaoh refused to change. And there's a statement that says, and God hardened the heart of Pharaoh. And you're going to see hardening the heart in what we're studying here. It's a doctrine that is sometimes difficult to understand, but what happens in certain instances, and in are rare instances, when someone comes face to face with the power of the Holy Spirit, 
in which the Holy Spirit is clearly evident and the person rejects that, rejects it, knowing that it is God, there's a judgment. And Pharaoh here was in the presence of God and he rejected it. And then God, because of his heart, because of his disposition towards this, God hardened his heart. Meaning, God said, if that's where you want to go, then you're going. Hardened his heart so that even he could not have the sensitivity at that point in time to see and understand truthfully what he was doing. Because God was going to use Pharaoh for an evangelical moment. He was going to use Pharaoh to prove the saving grace of God as he took his people uh, across the desert and across the Red Sea. And so I, will, I do this because I want to show you the precedents and the antecedents for what we study in Acts all through the Old Testament. Everything that you see in Acts, everything that you see here in the New Testament has been prophesied and foreordained. And, and you're going to see it all come together. And in order to have a really solid biblical study of Acts, we need to see some of these things. And so moving on from verse 13. From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. Circle John left them. John left them. That was John Mark. John Mark is a teenager at this point, probably 18, 19 years old. And you know that John Mark was the cousin of, of Barnabas. Uh, and he bailed out on them. Uh, and there's speculation as to why he bailed out. He might have been homesick. We don't know. Uh, some theologians say he bailed out because he was disgusted that Paul was uh, addressing Gentiles and was not pleased with that. That's speculation. Whatever it is, he bailed out, and Paul did not forgive him for years. For years. He does eventually forgive him, but this becomes a stumbling block between the relationship of Barnabas and Paul because on a later mission, Barnabas will want to take John Mark with him. And Paul will go, no way. He's not coming with me. And as a result of this, Paul and Barnabas split up. They split up over this. Um, and it's, it's a puzzling moment because you say to yourself, I don't understand it, Brother John. These, this is a... These are giants of the faith. How could they? They're giants of the faith. How many times? Warts. Warts. Constantly. Human. Clay feet. This is what you see. Okay? And the fact that Paul was basically taken off of the trash heap up in, up in uh, Tar uh, Tarsus, where he was there for 10 years, and Barnabas went up there and got him and brought him back into the main work of the church. Where's your memory? You know, where's your memory? But it, tell, it just shows you that these great men have feet of clay. And while in some way it's discouraging, it also should be uplifting. It should be uplifting because what you say to yourself is, then I understand my own human weakness. Why I get out of bed in the morning and within two minutes I've sinned. Why my mind is constantly going to Egypt. You know, we know this. Why Paul said, I'm so frustrated, I know what it is that I should do, and yet I can't. And I know what it is that I shouldn't do, and yet I do it. He speaks for us. He speaks for us. That's exactly what this condition's about. And so, John Mark leaves. 
And so they're left, the two of them are left to work this mission themselves. And so from Perga, they went on to Pisidian Antioch. This is not the original Antioch. There are about 15 Antiochs in the old world at that time. It was a common name. On the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and sat down. After reading the, the word, after reading from the law and the prophets, the synagogue rulers who sent word to them saying, Brothers, if you have a message of encouragement for the people, please speak. And so, standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, Men of Israel and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. Understand this. This, were, this was not merely Jews. It, it would also had Gentiles who had converted to Je uh, Judaism. So he was speaking here to effective, effectively converts of Judaism. The God of the people of Israel chose our fathers. This becomes Paul's first message to the Jewish people about the antecedents of our faith. How did we get to where we are today? What is this all about? How is it all prophesied? And how is Jesus the culmination, the very culmination of our own Jewish faith? And you're going to see how he does that, how he, how he preaches this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The God of the people of Israel chose our fathers. We are the chosen people. God chose us. This is the promise. This is the promise he gave Abraham. He made the people prospered during their stay in Egypt. He prospered our people for all those years that they were in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of that country. He endured their conduct for about 40 years in the desert. Circle endured their conduct. I love the way that, that says. He endured their conduct. The word endurance. It's not a pleasant word, is it? Endured. If I'm enduring something, it's painful. It's distasteful. I'm putting up with it. I'm not pleased. I'm putting up with it like bad medicine for 40 years as they wandered around in the desert. Here you have a Jew speaking to other Jews, telling them exactly what their people did for the 40 years, the chosen people, what they did wandering around in the desert. Continuing. He endured their conduct for about 40 years in the desert. He overthrew seven nations in Canaan and gave their land to his people as their inheritance. He fulfilled his promise to Abraham. He gave them the promised land overthrowing seven other countries and gave it to the Jewish people as their inheritance. All this took about 450 years. Now, there's some of you Bible scholars who are trying to figure out how did the 450 years get tabulated. And so I went back and I checked through another source uh, from Josephus who basically qualifies the 450 years that he was speaking about at that time as a common methodology of speech for Jews using 450 years. And this is how they calculate it. You might find this interesting. Solomon built the temple in the fourth year of his reign. 
That was 592 years after the exodus from Egypt. This then allows 40 years in the wilderness, 17 years after that with Joshua, 40 years with Samuel and Saul in power, 40 years with David, and then 452 years, the time of judges and subsequent anarchy. Okay? I give you that only because somebody's going to say, this doesn't make any sense. How are we getting 450? That's how he's getting 450. He's basically using that one common time period that he's referring it to. It really becomes the time of the judges and anarchy. It says then after this, after this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. Then the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, son of Kish of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David their king. He testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Now, I want to show you something uh, about, about God, God, in his wisdom, in his judgment, seeing the heart of people, using David as the ancestor of Jesus. David had a heart for God. But David did some of the most detestable things that any human being could do. He committed the most abominable of sins. It's difficult to talk about it. It's hard to talk about it in a, in a, a typical church environment. You need to have a place where you're with adults. But you know that David had an adulterous affair with Bathsheba. And Bathsheba's husband, Uriah the Hittite, was fighting on behalf of David and Israel at the front line. And when Bathsheba got pregnant as a result of that affair, David conspired, how can I spin this lie? How can I take this lie and this spin and protect myself? Oh, I know what I'll do. I'll have Uriah brought home. I'll bring him home. I'll give him leave, and when he comes leave, I'll tell him to go back into his home, be with his wife, and then after some time, we can send him back, but no one will know, and it will look as if he slept with his wife and impregnated his wife. I'm covered. No one will know my sin. Well, just to show you what kind of man Uriah was, Uriah comes back, and Uriah is so sensitive to the fact that he left his men fighting in the front line and does not feel it's righteous or appropriate for him to go into his house and be with his wife, he refuses to go into the house. He stays outside, staying there, because he cannot be away and be different from his men. He has a heart for the men. He believes it's not righteous for him to do that. So, of course, now, David, how can this be? I have to spin another lie. I have to spin some other conspiracy. And this is what happens. And you say, gosh, Brother John, this is the man that God will use as the ancestor of Jesus? And it gets worse. It gets worse. It doesn't get better. It doesn't get better. Because what does he do then? He calls in the top generals. 
And he says, look, I'm sending Uriah back, but put him in the front line. In fact, put him in the most dangerous area you can find. And then, just when things are really getting hot, pull everybody else back and leave him there alone. And they did, and he was killed. Oh, Lord. When you hear that, you hear that, you say to yourself, this, this is so unbelievably dark and detestable. This is horrendous. And so what happened? The prophet, Nathan, comes to David and tells him the story. Oh, you need to know the story in your kingdom. There is a man who has many, many sheep. And he has a neighbor who has only one sheep. And he treated it like a pet. But the man with thousands of sheep looked at the man with one and took the one. Took the one and slayed the one. Oh, David was just boiled up with outrage. That man should die, was the judgment. And Nathan, under the power of the Holy Spirit, looked at him and said, You are that man. And you see, here's where you see now, here's where you see what God saw. Here's what you see what God saw and what the world doesn't see. Because what God saw was David going, oh God, oh forgive me. Oh this sin. Oh I, I, I don't deserve to live. And what you saw then is, is David coming to terms with sin and repentance. And how God saw that. And so it's extraordinary when you tell this story and you preach this story that from this very man, this man filled with so many imperfections, imperfections, and God let Jesus come out of the ancestry of this man. It's extraordinary. And of course, you know the story that that baby died. That baby died. There's a judgment. You see, that's the thing. There's a judgment. We don't avoid a judgment. Things happen. You know, we just can't walk willy-nilly. And one of the things that God, we ask God to, do, to help us and deliver us is to keep us, constrain us, because these judgments befall Christians also. They befall godly people. And so here he's, he's, he's explaining how Jesus, the Messiah, came to be about as outlined, outlined in their books. And so he's continuing. And so he said, from this man's descendants, verse 23, God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus as he promised. And by the way, just to, to make sure that you've got a, a strong biblical confirmation of what I'm telling you about, if you turn to 2 Samuel, Chapter 7. And this is God's very promise to David. And this is basically verse 11 on. It says as follows, as God is speaking to David, as being told through the prophecy, the Lord declares to you, 
And this is he's speaking to David. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you. Who will come from your own body. And I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. 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 He is not talking about an earthly king. He's talking about the king of kings. So while in one hand this refers to Solomon, it has a far greater, a far greater. And it says there, continuing on in verse 13, He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Amen. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So here it is, folks. Here it is. Here it is. This imperfect man, this man who sinned some of the most detestable, de unbelievably ungodly things, but God saw his heart, saw his heart, and God honored it, honored his heart, even though there was a judgment. And you see now God says that through your ancestry, I will establish the king of kings on this earth. And so now... This is the story that Paul is explaining to the synagogue, to the people in the synagogue. And so continuing on, it says as follows. From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. As John was completing his work, he said, who do you think I am? I am not that one. No, but he is coming after me whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. In other words, the work of John the Baptist was well known to the Jewish community at this time. And so, as it was well known, he could, he could speak about what John the Baptist had done because there was a movement of repentance throughout Israel. And so John the Baptist had said, there is one coming after me that I am unworthy to even untie his sandals. And now Paul is now tying it all together. He's tying all of the work of Abraham and the promised children and the years in Egypt and the saving grace and, and the promised land. And now David, promising David, he brings it all together as he's now weaving this Old Testament series of prophecies to the Jewish believers in the synagogue. And so now he says, verse 26, Brothers, children of Abraham, and you God-fearing Gentiles. It is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. Can you just see the power, the power of this message? This message of salvation, it is for us. It is the gift for us. You can just see, if you were there, you can just imagine what the power of those words must have been. And it goes on in verse 27. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus. In other words, I'm not, I'm not condemning all of Israel yet. I'm not condemning all of the Jews yet. I am at this point condemning 
those that were in Jerusalem, the leaders that were in Jerusalem. He's making a, a pointed reference, but he's not painting with as broad a stroke yet as Peter is painted. Okay? The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus, yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Brothers and sisters, they didn't know what they were doing when they acted out and condemned Jesus. It was as if they read the script of a play that God had written. And they were unwitting actors. They didn't know, but God knew. They were fulfilling the plan. They didn't know. But God knew. And he's telling them this. You know. You know the words. You know what the prophet said. Though, though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. Amen. And for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. Folks, our people saw him. Hundreds of us saw him. Not one, not two, hundreds. Well, we know 500. We know 500. 500 witnesses that he left that tomb. Left that tomb and walked the world. Walked it for a period of time. And we saw it with our own eyes. You can imagine the power. You can just imagine the power of the Holy Spirit in the synagogue as he delivers this great first sermon. Amen. They are now his witnesses to our people. We tell you the good news. What God promised our fathers, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. This is the promise that he made to our, four, our forefathers. He has fulfilled his promise. He has given us Jesus. And the thing is, is that I, I spoke about this in the earlier class this morning. You can just imagine the power of these words. And if you saw Paul from, the, from all of the uh, references about him physically, he was a very unimposing man. He was very short. He had bow legs. Uh, his voice was not a powerful voice. Uh, and he had some kind of physical ailment. We don't know precisely what it is. It's referred to as a thorn in the flesh. Some people say that it was a, an eye that was not proper. We don't know what it was. Whatever it was, whatever it was, it bothered Paul and he felt that he could not be as effective in his preaching. Okay? And yet, you see the power of the Holy Spirit through these words. And here's the thing, folks. You know, you could turn on television and you'll see somebody preaching who's got a $5,000 suit and a, you know, a big gold Rolex and a $300 haircut. But I'm telling you, listen to the words. Listen to the words. Because it's the Holy Spirit. When you see the true words of the Holy Spirit, the messenger is irrelevant 
irrelevant. What is God saying? What is God saying? And you can see it here. This man is being used in a powerful way as he delivers. We tell you the good news. What God promised our fathers, he has fulfilled for us, your children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, and now he quotes again. And this is a quote that the first century church relied on. This was the quote that the first century used to prove to them that Jesus was the Son of God. This was a common quote that they understood. And this is from Psalm 2, verse 7. You are my son. Today I have become your father. And then it goes on, he says, the fact that God raised him from the dead, never to decay, is stated in these words. It's another recitation. Again, this is from Isaiah. Isaiah 55, verse 3. I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. And again it says, and Paul goes again, and it is stated somewhere else, and it's somewhere else is in Psalm 16. You will not let your holy one see decay. Oh God, that's the promise. That was the promise. You will not let your holy one see decay. So yes, David will die and decay. Abraham died and decayed. Moses died and his body decayed, but not Jesus. Not Jesus. Not Jesus. As promised in their scripture. For when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep, meaning he died. He was buried with his fathers and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. And so now Paul lays it out. Lays it out to the Jewish brethren in this synagogue. Here's the difference, brothers. Here's the difference. David, Jesus comes from the line of David, but David died, his body decomposed, as did all, all of the great prophets. But Jesus walked around after he died, we saw him. He was resurrected from the dead. There are numerous people that saw him, and that was foretold in the scriptures. It was foretold in your scriptures. And so now he gives the application, the application of what he's saying in verse 34. Therefore, my brothers, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. What is this? What do you mean the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed through Jesus? What about those animal sacrifices? What about the law? What about all those things that Moses did? All those ceremonies? All those high holy days? What about all of them? What are you telling me? This is the new doctrine. There's no more need to sacrifice. There are no sacrifices because here's what happens when you sacrifice. You make the sacrifice and you walk out and you need to continue to sacrifice. There aren't enough animals in the world to cover the sins of humanity. There are not enough. But with Jesus, crucified once, crucified once for all of us, for all mankind, for all that took place before and all that took place after. And, and Paul will write extensively, uh, uh, extensively on this issue, on, on the justification by faith alone in Jesus for forgiveness of sins. He will write the letter to the Romans. He will spend numerous chapters on this, stop, on this application. And now he's bringing it for the first time 
to the Jewish community who was hearing this for the first time. This is a powerful doctrine that they have not heard before. They have always been taught your sins are forgiven through sacrifice. Now they're being told your sins are forgiven by the Son of God as preordained, as preordained by God himself through the scriptures. Let's close at this point. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful that you've been with us today, Lord. You've given us your word. I ask that, that this word be directed to our hearts where it is needed, Lord, that you multiply it as we contemplate it during this week, as we try to put it into action, Lord, as we try to be the kind of Christians that you want us to be, as we try to be messengers of the word, Lord, so that when people see us as men and women, that the world will say, I want to be like they are, God. That's my prayer. And also, Lord, I ask that you put a wall of protection around these dear people and everything that they do, that you give them the sincerest blessings of their heart, and I ask you, Lord, to bring them back safely next week to continue the study of your word. We put all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.